0: All right, so I don't know how many of you were here last week, uh, but last week Dave kind of introed that we're moving into kind of a new series, and the series that we're in is called Unseen. And Dave talked about this idea that for eight weeks we are going to be looking at, for lack of a better phrase, the unseen realm. Unseen world, looking at forces and powers and beings that we can't see with our naked eye, and yet the Bible tells us very plainly are there. And I don't know what you felt at at the end of Dave's sermon last week. I don't know what you thought about this week. I know there's probably a variety of feelings. Uh, Some are probably excited. Oh, man, we're finally going to talk about angels and demons, you know, whatever. Some of you might be a little too excited about that. You might have gone and dug out some old spiritual warfare books or something. I don't know. Some of you might be nervous about it. Some of you might be a little bit, like, confused. Some people might feel a little disappointed. Like, man, why in the world are we going to take eight weeks to talk about spirits and things that we can't see and things we don't understand? And, you know, my story, personally, I, I grew up in a church tradition that never really talked about the unseen, never talked about spirits, demons, angels, any of these things. We never really delved into them at all. And, um, you know, over the last 20 years or so, I have given my life to studying the Bible. I've given my life to to ministry, of trying to to further the cause of Christ in partnership with Jesus by empowered by the Holy Spirit. And over these 20 years, I've had experiences, I've encountered things that I did not have a box for. I didn't have a, a paradigm for it. I didn't understand it. I, I encountered demonic activity. And this is gonna be kind of weird. If you're visiting with us, by the way, this is not the norm for what we talk about. If you're like, man, what did I step into this morning? Welcome to church. Um, you know, But I encountered things that I didn't know what to do with. You know, When I traveled to Uganda, I saw demonic possession. I was like, man, I don't know what to do with that. I traveled to India, I saw demonic. I've seen demonic in Uganda and in India and in Arkansas. You guys didn't see that coming, did you? I've seen it in Arkansas. I've seen it in British Columbia. I've seen it in Nashville. And and I was not equipped. The church I grew up in didn't didn't give me an understanding for what to do with these things when I encountered it. I have had personal encounter with angels. Don't talk about it very often. I had a moment in my life where God just showed me how near he is to me. you know, like thinking of this story and how kind our God is to encourage me by giving me a sense and a a vision of being able to see how near he was and to see angelic beings. I know this is uncomfortable, kind of weird maybe for some, but these are things I encountered and I didn't have a paradigm for them. You know, I believe as a church family, we've got to be equipped to be able to see the world the way the Bible sees the world. You know, if I had to put a title on this sermon, Um, I I would probably just call it Reclaiming a Biblical Worldview. So if you take notes and you don't know what to call it, you can just call it that, Reclaiming a Biblical Worldview. You know, the reality is, and Dave hit on this last week, he said this entire thing is rooted in Jesus and what we see in the life of Jesus is that he taught on, he engaged the unseen world, he taught on the unseen world. And if we want to understand Jesus' ministry holistically, we need a greater understanding of the worldview that Jesus has. And so part of today, my goal is to go, okay, what was the worldview of Jesus? How did he see the spiritual world? And the truth was, he he read... The same Bible that we read, he read the Hebrew Scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, and that shaped his worldview. He is God in the flesh, and he saw it, and he understood it in ways that we can't begin to understand it. But if we want to understand what he taught and how he engaged, we have got to reclaim that worldview. And I'm just going to tell you, uh, it will be challenging for us for a variety of reasons. You know, one, most of us have been were born and have been raised in a modern or postmodern context, where we've just been told that hey, if you can't measure it, if you can't quantify it. If you can't see it scientifically, it doesn't exist or it's not real. And that's just what we've been taught. Many of us were born in America, been raised in America. And I don't know if you know this or not, if you've never traveled that far outside of America, but we have a little bit of a reputation of thinking that our way is the best way and our way is the only way. It's the way the world kind of sees us. We tend to be pretty ethnocentric. So not only have we been trained as moderns, we've been conditioned as Americans and we live in a radically individualistic culture that kind of says, hey, whatever your truth is and let your truth be that. And so the ability, our ability to take hold of a worldview that's different than ours and adopt it as our own is going to be really challenging and you're gonna feel that. You'll feel kind of the tension there. That's okay and I'm not, none of those things are bad. I'm not trying to slam us by saying we're modern American, what individualist, whatever. It's like, it's just what we are. And we need to know that as we begin to try to grapple with this different worldview, because the worldview that Jesus operated off of, that the biblical writers operated off of, is radically different than ours. And so I'm just going to tell you up front, today is going to feel in some ways more like a class, more like a workshop than a sermon and I wish I had a handout to give everybody with all the scriptures and all the references. I don't. But what I do want to encourage you, I do have a lot of slides. So if you're that person that wants to go deeper and get, like, get your camera ready, you can take pictures of the slides as we're going. I'm not going to read every scripture on the screen, uh, but, but you can go spend some time doing that. If you want to know more, I'm just going to tell you, I am not an expert on these things. I don't claim to be. If you want to know more and you want to go deeper, I could recommend a couple resources. A gentleman by the name of Michael Heiser, he has some really good books out. One of his books, this one's a little more academic. If you like the academic thing, he has a book called The Unseen Realm by Michael Heiser. If you don't like the academic approach, which I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, I kind of wish I hadn't gotten this book because it's a little too dense for me. Um, But he has another book called uh, uh, Supernatural. And it's basically the same content, but a little more accessible in nature by Michael Heiser. Another book that, could, that is actually really helpful, uh, a lot of you have probably read this, uh, God Has a Name by John Mark Comer. John Mark is a friend of Ethos. And um, you know this, uh, this book in the second chapter specifically, he talks about a lot of what we're gonna be talking about this morning. So if you want more resources, you can look there. Michael Heiser has a ton of videos on YouTube where he teaches on all of this. So there's lots out there if you wanna go further. I'm not the expert, but we're gonna start... In Psalm 82, uh, what Sean read is our scripture reading this morning, Psalm 82. So let's just look at verse one. It'll be on the screen behind me. Psalm 82, verse one. God presides in the great assembly. He renders judgment among the gods. This is a strange verse. Strange verse for us as Christians. God presides among the assembly. He renders judgment among the gods. There's this, anybody notice that there's a plurality of the word God's in this verse. It prevents a lot of challenges, presents a lot of challenges to us as Christians. But something happens uh, when you dig a little deeper and you begin to look at the Hebrew, it gets even more confusing and a little more uh, eye-catching when you look at the Hebrew. And so uh, I'm gonna change out one word in this verse with the Hebrew word. I want you to see it'll be on the screen. If we change out the word God for the Hebrew word that is there, it actually reads this way. Elohim presides in the great assembly. He renders judgment among the Elohim. Did you notice that? The one word, Elohim, is used two different times. It is used once to refer to a singular being and it is used another time to refer to a plural being. And maybe you've heard this word Elohim before. Maybe you've heard it uh, used as referring to the God of the Bible, and that is true. It is used, this word Elohim, it's a Hebrew word. It is used hundreds of times in the Old Testament to refer to the God of the Bible. His name is Yahweh. If you didn't know that God had a name, it's okay. You can go back, listen to our sermon series back in the fall that was called God Is. We spent a lot of time looking at the name of God, Yahweh. Uh, But he has a name. His name is Yahweh. His name is not Elohim. And Elohim is not a name that refers to him by name. But Elohim is the second most common word to refer to God in the Old Testament. You know, here we see it used to refer to God, the singular God, but here it's also used to uh, to refer to what is apparently a group of gods. And this feels really problematic for us as Christians because it tends to imply that there is more than one God. And I don't know if you've been around Christianity very long, but we are very thoroughly monotheistic. We only believe in one God. Jews are also monotheistic. And yet here's this word in a Hebrew scripture referring to a plurality of little g gods. And so what do we do with that? Well, We've got to look a little bit more closely at this word Elohim. It presents all kinds of problems because of the way that it gets translated. The word Elohim in the Bible actually refers to a wide variety of different things. And in order to understand what the writer was referring to when that word is used, you have to look at the particular context for the passage that you're looking at. So throughout the Bible, the biblical writers use this word Elohim to refer to a variety of beings. And so we're going to list some of these out on the screen. There's at least six of them. We'll see on the screen here, sometimes the word Elohim refers to Yahweh. Okay, this is the God of the Bible, the God of Israel. Sometimes Elohim is, referred to, uh, is used to refer to the members of Yahweh's council or the divine council. We're going to go a little deeper into some of these as we go. Sometimes it's used to refer to what's known as foreign gods or the gods of the nations. Sometimes Elohim is used to refer to demons. Really, that could be a subpoint for the previous one, for gods of the nations. We'll unpack that a little bit. Sometimes Elohim is used to refer to the spirits of the dead, the disembodied spirits of dead human beings are referred to as Elohim. And we're not going to be able to dig into that one today. I wish we could, but I encourage you uh, to have a look at these passages that are listed if you want to know more about this. This is a biblical idea that the spirits of the dead, um, there's activity about them in the Bible, and there's strong words about not trying to consult them, not going to them for wisdom or insight or personal help. That is not what we are to go for help, but they do exist. Okay, the other way that Elohim is used is to refer to angels, most commonly the angel of the Lord, the angel of Yahweh. Okay, so, so what we see on this list is that Elohim, it is not a name for God. In fact, translating it as God is what makes it so sticky for us as Christians. Now, the biblical writers did not use this word the same way we use the word G-O-D. It's not the way they use the word Elohim. When we see the word G-O-D, God, we, we think of kind of a being who is omnipotent, who's kind of all-powerful, omniscient, all-knowing. We think of a being who's spiritual and somehow has sovereignty over humanity. That's what we imagine when we hear the word God, which is why our skin crawls a little bit when we see the word God's in a plural form as followers of Jesus. We're like, eh, I don't like that. But in the Hebrew mind, however, Elohim was just a single word used to describe a wide category of spiritual beings, heavenly beings. It's a word that is used in the Hebrew mind to describe the inhabitants of the unseen realm, the inhabitants of the heavens. So, what we see here in Psalm 82 is that in actuality, there are many inhabitants. There are many of beings in the unseen realm. And I wanna drill down into a few of these because I believe that understanding these spiritual beings is going to help us as we continue this journey together over the next seven weeks. How are we to understand what's happening in the unseen realm? How do we understand Jesus' interaction with demons? How do we understand Jesus talking about his father who is unseen? How do we understand these things? We've gotta take a deeper look and how the Hebrew writers would have used the word Elohim. And so, you know, some of you, when you think of the unseen realm, you might just think about the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Some of you might think, is it, is it the Trinity and Satan? Is it the Trinity, is it Yahweh and all of his angels and Satan and all of his demons? Who exactly is at work? And what Psalm 82 does is it pulls back the curtain for us to be able to see exactly what is happening in this realm that we cannot see. And again, man, this is stretching for us as moderns. If you want to be laughed out of a room, walk into an academic circle and tell them that you believe in an unseen realm well, Elohim are having all this activity over the nations of the earth, just be laughed out of the room. But as moderns, what we have to ask is, are we going to try to get the Bible to fit into our worldview or will we come very humbly and open-handedly and go, I trust in the inspiration of the scriptures and I want my worldview to line up with what the Bible says? And that's what we're trying to do this morning. So Psalm 82 kind of does this for us. Let's start with the different uses of Elohim. The first use we're gonna look at is the use of it being referring to Yahweh. Elohim referring to the God of the Bible, the God of Israel, Yahweh. Where do we see this? Well, there's a whole list of scriptures. I think we can get that slide. Yeah, so you can see all these scriptures here. All these scriptures are places, and these are just a few of them. There's hundreds of them. Where Elohim is used to refer to Yahweh, the God of the Bible. Okay, the God of Israel. These are just a few references there. And we'll go a little deeper into each into one of these. So creation, for example, the very first one up there is Genesis 1.1. Well, if you've been in church any amount of time for a long time, you might know Genesis 1.1. It starts this way. It says, in the beginning, God did what? Created the heavens. heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That word there is Elohim in the singular case. We know it's singular because the word create, the verb there is singular. So what Genesis 1-1 is saying is in the beginning, this singular Elohim, this singular spiritual being, the singular unseen being created the heavens and the earth. This one Elohim, this one spiritual being was the singular creator and origin of the heavens and the earth. Yahweh, the God of the Bible, the supreme Elohim, created everything else, everything else that is out there, everything that humanity can see and everything that humanity can't see, He created it all. Now this verse, this verse, was radical in the ancient world, because in the ancient mind, creation came about as the outcome of some sort of divine war between a pantheon of all equal gods, and Earth was kind of created. But what the Bible held out in the ancient world was so unique. It was revealed. It was revealed to humanity. No, 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 this is not not like this pantheon of equal gods. No, one Elohim, one God created everything you can know in the heavens and the earth. That means that this Elohim created the heavens, the unseen realm, the heavenlies, and everything that exists in the heavens. And he created the earth and everything that exists on the earth. This one God is held out to be supreme above all the others. He is held out to be the creator of all the others. Now, throughout the rest of the Old Testament, this one Elohim, Yahweh, is kind of held out and set apart against all of these other gods. He is held up as being over them and being superior to them. We see this in several places um, in Exodus 15, uh, 11, Exodus 18, 11, we see this in the Exodus where um, it is just kind of said that, oh, now I see that the Elohim of Israel is greater than the Elohim of Egypt. You see, this God of Israel, Yahweh, is held up to be superior to these gods of the nations Deuteronomy 4:35 is another place where we see this I think we have this one on the screen it says you were shown these things talking to Israel you were shown these things so that you might know that the Lord Yahweh is Elohim besides him there is no other Now as moderns we look at this sentence and we go okay there it says it right there Elohim he's the only one he's the only actual spiritual being there is no other the problem is, is this would create a whole lot of contradiction throughout the rest of the Bible. Multiple verses that say the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, is greater than all the other gods, all the other Elohim. And what, if, if a lot of times we're tempted to think, oh, all these other gods in the Old Testament, they're just like a figment of the ancient imagination. And they didn't really exist. But if that is true, then what the Bible says over and over again is that Yahweh is the greatest imaginary being of all the other imaginary beings. I'm not really okay with that. You now, the Bible over and over again seems to indicate that these other gods, these other Elohim, they are real. They exist. And so Psalm 82 holds out. God does not preside in the midst of a bunch of imaginary beings. That would not be glorifying to God in any way whatsoever. Psalm 96.4 says, for great is the Lord Yahweh and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all the other Elohim." If God is to be feared above all the other imaginary beings, then that doesn't really give him a whole lot of glory. Psalm 97.7, all who worship images are put to shame. Those who boast in idols, worship him, all you Elohim. Worship him, all you gods. The Elohim are called upon in scripture to worship Yahweh, the supreme spiritual being. So we see throughout the Old Testament, these, these spiritual beings that are in the unseen realm are referred to over and over and over again. Not as though they are fictitious, but no, they are referred to as actual beings that need to submit to Yahweh, the supreme and most high of all spiritual beings, okay? So this is Elohim used to refer to Yahweh. But there's other places in the Old Testament where this word Elohim refers to what can be called the members of Yahweh's council, okay? And I think we have a list of scriptures for this as well. Uh, These are members of the Yahweh's council or what scholars call the divine council, uh, there's mention of the divine council all throughout the Old Testament. And, you know, it's hard for us to understand, like, what in the world is the divine council? What is this? This, like, gathering of spiritual beings. And, you know, in Isaiah 6, he sees them in the throne room. In Daniel 7, we see the divine council when, when the Ancient of Days takes his seat on the throne and the Son of Man approaches him. And it says that they're all gathered there around him and they render judgment with him. 1 Kings 11 has this really bizarre story of, the, of God interacting with the divine council. So there's all these different weird situations going on there, but what is the divine council? Well, one way to think about it is, is that the divine council is like God's inner circle. It's like God's inner circle in the unseen realm. You see, in the Hebrew worldview, the heavens, the spiritual realm, were structured with kind of a three-tier hierarchy, okay? At the top of this hierarchy, we have an image for this. So at the top of this hierarchy was Yahweh not surprising. He is held out to be the most supreme. He's at the top of the hierarchy. In the Hebrew mind, a lot of people are surprised to see that at the bottom of this hierarchy are angels. Angels are Elohim. They are spiritual beings. But the word, but their title, both in Hebrew and in Greek, Malach in Hebrew and uh, Angelos in Greek, both of those just refer to a title or a task. So an, an angel was kind of the bottom of the hierarchy, and they just were given a task by Yahweh, typically a messenger. But in the middle of this hierarchy is what the Old Testament calls the sons of God. Okay, in Hebrew, the word is b'nei Elohim. Now, many of us read this phrase, sons of God, in our Bibles, and we have no idea that it's actually referring to spiritual beings. It's b'nei Elohim, sons of the spiritual ones, sons of God. Now, we see these sons of God in a wide variety of places throughout Scripture. We don't have time to look at all of them. I'll point out a couple of them just so you can see. One of the places that we see the sons of God is at the beginning of a book called Job. If you've ever read Job, it's, it's, it's the ancient, uh, Hebrew, ancient Hebrew text dealing with human suffering and what we do with that. But Job 1, says, one day the angels, that's B'nai Elohim. So if you have the NIV, your Bible will say the angels. If you have the ESV, it'll say sons of God. Okay, the, the correct translation there, the literal translation is sons of God. One day, the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan, oh, there he is, also came with them. And we'll talk about Satan here in a little bit. Okay, but sons of God. Okay, here's this passage very clearly. God is interacting with these sons of God. This is the divine counsel. Okay, Job 38 gives us even a little more insight into these sons of God. Look at Job 38. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footing set, or who laid its cornerstone, while the morning stars sang together and all the angels, no, B'nai Elohim, all the sons of God shouted for joy. These divine beings, these sons of God, these B'nai Elohim, were there when God created the earth. Remember the beginning? In the beginning, God, Elohim, created the heavens and the earth. We have no idea how time was working there. We don't know how long passed between when God created the heavens and all that is in the heavens and when he created the earth. But what Job 38 holds out for us is that these sons of God, this divine council, they were there when God laid the foundations of the earth. Now, Deuteronomy 32.8 is another verse we're going to look at. And um, Deuteronomy 32.8 is really fascinating. Here it's gonna talk about the Son of God. Look at this verse. says, when the Most High, that is Yahweh, gave the nations their inheritance. When he divided all mankind, he set up boundaries for the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. Now, if you're following along in your Bible and you have the NIV, or I think even the ESV does this, it says, uh, according to the sons of Israel. I don't have time to unpack why those are different, but the most ancient transcripts we have, it is not sons of Israel, it is sons of God. And what this passage is referring to Try not to get too deep on this. I don't want you to fall asleep on me. But what this is referring to is the Tower of Babel. Raise your hand if you know the story of Tower of Babel. Okay, the Tower of Babel, right? Genesis 11. Man comes together to try to build this tall tower to be like the gods. They try to reach it, and God confuses them. What does he do? He gives them what. He gives them all different languages, right? And that's kind of how we read the story. God confused them, gave them different languages, and then they scattered. But there's more to that story. God scattered them into different nations. What happens at the Tower of Babel, it was a severe judgment against humanity. And the nations at Babel were disinherited by Yahweh and given over to the administration of other Elohim whose actions would later be judged by God himself. Now, if you missed all that, basically what it means is that God divided up the nations and he entrusted administration to those nations to who? To these sons of God, to these Elohim, his divine counsel. They were to oversee these nations in the spiritual realm. And so this is why we get these crazy stories like in Daniel 10, where we read about the prince of Persia and the prince of Greece referring to these spiritual beings. And we kind of start to get the impression that the gods of these other nations don't seem to all be like Yahweh. And they don't even all seem to want to submit to Yahweh. And this leads us into the third way that we see Elohim used, and that is to refer to the gods of the nations, the gods of the nations. Okay, we got a lot of examples and put that slide up here. All of these scriptures are places where we see Elohim being used to refer to gods of nations. Um, You know, and I, I don't know how deep to go into all of this, but um, you can you can look up these scriptures, you can read them. Um, 1 Kings 11 actually starts giving some names to these gods of the nations. We read these names like Ashtoreth and Molech and other places of the Bible you read names like Marduk and Dagon and Baal and all these other like Elohim of the nations and Israel is warned not to worship them. These are the gods of the nations that Israel was moving in the midst of when they came into Canaan. And so th- a lot of times we're tempted to go, well, these were just like imaginary gods, right? These weren't real. But that's not what the Bible holds out. It calls them Elohim. They were spiritual beings over these nations that God actually entrusted these nations under their care and they don't seem to do a good job. And we'll get to that further in Psalm 82 in a minute. What's fascinating though about this idea of the gods of the nations is what happens in Deuteronomy 32, 17. So let's put up Deuteronomy thirty-two seventeen. Uh, this is talking about Israel going into captivity. And it says this, they sacrificed to false gods. Some of your Bibles may say demons there, okay? And I'll, I'll talk about that, which are not Elohim. They are not God. That's the singular, they are not God. But then it says Elohim, gods. They had not known. Gods, Elohim, they had, they had recently appeared. Gods, Elohim, your ancestors did not fear. So what's happening in Deuteronomy 32, 17? This idea of demons, what, what God is saying to Israel, he's saying, listen, Israel is gonna go into captivity and in captivity, they're gonna worship gods they don't know and he refers to them as demons. Now, a lot of times we hear the word demon and what we think that means, that demon automatically means a bad guy. Like in the, in the unseen realm, in spiritual beings, demons are automatically bad guys. But this word in Deuteronomy 32 did not have that connotation for Hebrews. And the Hebrew word was shadim and shadim simply was a way to refer to a territorial god, a god of a certain territory, a spiritual being with authority over a certain region. Okay? So in Deuteronomy 32, he's referring to these Shadim. He's saying, listen, Israel will be scattered among the nations, and there they're going to worship these territorial gods, these Shadim, these demons. And, and then he goes on to call them Elohim. Elohim, their fathers had not known. So the Bible is going, okay, Israel's is gonna worship these other spiritual beings, these other gods. Now, this gets really fascinating. This, this, this passage um, gives us a great bridge into the New Testament because the Apostle Paul, a guy that a lot of us are familiar with if you've read the New Testament, he actually quotes this verse. He quotes Deuteronomy 32, 17. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul is going to talk to a bunch of Christians just like you and me. They lived in the first century world. They lived in a pagan world where the people around them and the cities around them were worshiping all these other deities, all these other idols and gods, and they would sacrifice animals to these deities. And the apostle Paul was trying to give them practical instruction. Hey, how do you interact with these people? Do you eat the meat that they sacrifice to these idols? Do you not? And Look at what he says in 1 Corinthians 10. He says, consider the people of Israel. So immediately he's calling their attention back to Israel. He says, do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar. Do I mean then that food sacrificed to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? He says, no, but pay attention. But the sacrifices of pagans are offered to what? Somebody say it. Demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. Demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons you so just keep saying it over and over again. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of what? demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? The apostle Paul here is quoting and if you have a bible that's annotated you'll see a reference there to Deuteronomy 32. And what Paul is saying there's a couple of key things he says here to these early Christians. First, he very clearly says are idols anything? He goes, No, idols are nothing. An idol is nothing. It is very true that an idol, this is why the Old Testament authors always kind of poked fun at idols, like it's a chunk of wood, it's a rock, and you're gonna bow down and worship. An idol is nothing. But here's the here's the thing: is that even pagan idol worshippers do not believe necessarily that their idol has any power. In the ancient world, An idol would be carved or cut out of rock or whatever, and before it had any power at all, they had to do a ceremony where they awakened the idol to welcome the divine presence of the Elohim into that idol. What they were worshiping was not the idol, but the spiritual being that the idol represented. This is still true today. In Hinduism, there's actually a ceremony. If you have an idol, there's a ceremony where you welcome the divine presence into the idol. The idol is nothing. But the spirit that the idol is connected to, the apostle Paul, listen to what he says. He does not mince words. He says, listen, the spirits that are connected to these idols, they are demons. They are not non-entities. They are not imaginary beings. They are not the construct of some human imagination. He goes, no, these spirits that are connected to this false religion, they are nothing less than demons. I'm just gonna tell you, brothers and sisters, as followers of Jesus in the world today, this has huge implications for us. Other religions are not neutral. If you're a follower of Jesus, and I know the words I'm saying are, they sound harsh in our modern like ears, but other religions are not neutral, they are not benign. According to the apostle Paul and to the teaching of scripture, Other religions are connected to demons, Elohim, spiritual beings that stand in opposition to Yahweh. Those things being worshiped in Hinduism, in Buddhism, even Allah of Islam are connected not to empty beings but to spirits, Elohim, that are demons. They are spiritual beings living in opposition to Yahweh who seek to lead humanity astray. We are looking at Spiritual forces all around us. You know, Paul will refer to these gods of the nations in many ways. He'll refer to them as the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms in Ephesians 3. He'll refer to them as spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms in Ephesians 6, verse 12. He'll refer to them as thrones, powers, and rulers and authorities in Colossians 1, verse 16. The apostle Paul believed very firmly in the existence of these Elohim, these spiritual beings, and they were not neutral beings. Summary, so what we've where we've been so far is that what Psalm 82, 1 holds out to us is that in the unseen realm, there are a, a host of spiritual beings, these Elohim. Some are living in obedience and submission to Yahweh, and some are living in rebellion to Yahweh, but we are called to be aware of them, that they are there. I know many, the driving question that a lot of people have is, okay, so what, what about Satan? Like, is he one of these Elohim? What is he? And, and you're not going to like my answer. My simple answer is, man, I really, I don't know. <laughs> like it is the history, uh, the development of who Satan is as a character is, is mysterious. But what we can know is that the scriptures from beginning to end, they affirm the existence of an Elohim, a spiritual being who is opposed to the work of God in the lives of humans that there is this spiritual being that does not like what God is trying to accomplish in humanity and he is opposed to him. But the important thing to take away this is that what the Bible holds out to us is it is not God versus Satan in this divine cosmic battle. It is not God and his angels versus an equal foe of darkness, Satan and all of his demons. No, the story of the Bible is it is God supreme, Yahweh, creator of all. And he is the one who actually created all of these Elohim, whether they are in submission to him or not, he is their creator. And then all these other spiritual beings are under him, including Satan. He's referred to in the Bible as the father of lies, the devil, Satan, Beelzebub, the certain, the dragon, whatever you want to call him. But he is nothing more than a created entity of Yahweh Almighty living in rebellion to what he's trying to accomplish on the earth. So the question that we have to ask is, what are these Elohim doing now? And should we be afraid of them? As followers of Jesus, should we be concerned? Should we wring our hands and be worried that there's these unseen beings that we can't see, we don't know what they're up to? Should we be concerned? You know, I, I love the way my friend Jen Barnett talks about this when she talks about the work of the enemy, which is very clear, we have an enemy. The, the Bible refers to Satan, demons, Elohim who are opposed to Yahweh, they are our enemy. And I love what Jen Barnett says. She says, listen, when it comes to our walk as followers of Jesus, we need to be aware of the enemy, but we need to be in awe of God. Aware of the enemy, in awe of God. He's supreme. He's the almighty. He is for you. He is with you. He is all authority in heaven and on earth. And so what I love about Psalm 82 is it pulls back the curtain into how this dynamic works. This idea of a supreme Elohim over all the other spiritual beings. I just want to walk really quickly, and this is where we're going to land this morning. I just want to walk quickly through Psalm 82 so that you can see do we need to be concerned about these Elohim? Do we need to be afraid of them? Or do we just need to be aware of them? Psalm 82 gives a picture of how God interacts with these Elohim who live in defiance to him. So we've already read verse 1 God presides in the great assembly. He renders judgment among the gods, the Elohim. Verse two, how he's speaking to them. Now what's happening here, this is like a courtroom setting. God is presiding over this assembly and all these other spiritual beings are gathered and God is the great judge. And the first thing he's gonna do in verse two, in verse two, he's going to give his allegations against these Elohim, his accusation. Verse two, he says, how long will you defend the unjust? Who's he talking to? He's talking to these Elohim. How long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? See, what we see with these Elohim throughout Scripture is that injustice seems to be linked with their work. Injustice seems to be linked with the worship of these other spiritual beings. Injustice seems to follow them around like stink. Anytime Israel begins to give their allegiance to these other Elohim, corruption creeps in and injustice begins to abound in their nation. You know, we got to ask the question, guys. What's what's happening in Russia right now? Is it just this guy Putin who's crazy and land hungry and a, a an angry dictator? Yeah, but is there something else at work as well? I would say yes. There are Elohim, gods of the nations. You read in First Kings 22 that they're interacting with leaders of nations regularly in ways that we can't fully understand. What's happening in communist China? Bring a little closer to home. What's happening in the United States? I just want to tell you, anywhere you see injustice on a societal level, anywhere you see that, you know, spiritual forces are at work. Anywhere where we see an ideology, an agenda, a narrative, that is working against the ways of Jesus across a culture. It is not just the work of humanity, it is a spiritual component that is at work in our world. This is why Paul says it this way, and some of you can actually complete this sentence in Ephesians 6. He says, Our battle is not against what? Flesh, flesh and blood. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers the authorities and the powers of this dark world and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. What Psalm 82 says is that when these spiritual powers take hold in a culture that they wreak havoc and injustice and corruption, and God calls them out for it, he says, this is my accusation against you. You have been unjust." And then he gives them this charge. This is the commission that he gives to them as those who are supposed to be over nations. He says, Defend the weak and the fatherless, uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed, rescue the weak and the needy, deliver them from the hand of the wicked. What they were supposed to be doing was working on behalf of humanity. This is God's heart for all of his creation that they would work in alignment with his heart to rescue the weak to take care of the needy. This is us as image bearers of God. This is what he wants for us. We are to be ruling on earth the same way. So he has these accusations against the Elohim just like he has against humanity. And then in verse five, he gives his verdict on these Elohim. Listen to what he says. He says, the gods, the Elohim, they know nothing. They understand nothing. They walk about in darkness. And as a result, all the foundations of the earth are shaken. Is it inconsequential to us what happens in the heavenlies? Absolutely not. Psalm 82 says it is utterly consequential. He says, these Elohim that live in defiance to Yahweh, that walk about in darkness and the foundations of the earth are shaken. The verdict is they know nothing. They live in rebellion. And so what is God gonna do about it? What is Yahweh gonna do about it? Verse six and seven, we see their sentencing. He says, I said, you are gods. I said, you are Elohim. You are all sons of the Most High. That's B'nai Elohim or B'nai El-Roi. But you will die like mere mortals. You will fall like every other ruler. God gives his sentence to these spiritual beings who live in defiance to him. He says, listen, the day is coming when judgment will be cast and you will be thrown down. You will not have any power. You will die like a mere mortal. And then verse eight is this call. Rise up, O Elohim. Rise up, O Yahweh. Judge the earth for all the nations are your inheritance. The picture that we get at the end of Psalm 82 is that Yahweh, the supreme spiritual being, the supreme Elohim, he is victorious amongst the nations. He is victorious amongst the Elohim. How does he do this? And this is where it's just so beautiful. How does this this supreme spiritual being gain victory over all this rebellion in the heavens and all the rebellion on the earth? Well, this supreme Elohim, this supreme spiritual being that created everything, created all the heavens, created all the earth, he puts on human flesh. Can you feel the humility in that? This divine being, that's above it all. He puts on flesh and comes in the man, Jesus Christ. God, tired of seeing his human children being ravaged by one another and by spiritual forces, he puts on flesh and he says, direct your rebellion and your wrath at me. I'll take it. And he hangs on a cross he suffers a humiliating death and all of the defiant and rebellious spiritual beings and earthly beings rejoice because they think they have crushed the God of all creation. <laughs> and that's not where the story ends. You see, our God wins by being humble, by being a servant, by lowering himself and loving himself, loving his own life, not and all the way into death and laying down his life for us. And then he triumphs victoriously in resurrection. This is the story of the Bible. This is the God that we serve. What is our role today? You know, today our job is to make sure that we we are linking ourselves, we are pledging our allegiance to the right force, to the right ruler, to the right king. Why do we take communion every week? You know, the communion, when we gather in here, beloved brothers and sisters, we gather as agents of light in a world that is surrounded by much darkness. And when we take of the bread and we take of the cup, the body and the blood of Jesus, we are saying, I do not yoke myself with any other force. I do not yoke myself with any demon, any spirit, any work of this world. No, I yoke myself. I devote myself. I pledge my allegiance to King Jesus and we stand out as agents of light in a really dark world. And so this morning, as we take communion, you are declaring to the spiritual forces in the heavenly realms that you are connected to Jesus, the God of the universe who made himself nothing so that he could conquer evil with the resurrection over dead. So I'm gonna pray for us. I just wanna give us some space uh, to take communion together and to recognize this is not an empty ritual but you are declaring your loyalty to King Jesus, the ruler of all rulers, the king of all kings, the God of all gods. Let's pray. Your thanks. Lord, we love you. I thank you so much for who you are. I thank you that you did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, Jesus, but you made yourself nothing, taking on the form of a servant, humbling yourself even to the point of death. And now we recognize that Yahweh has listed, lifted up the name of Jesus so it is name above every name so that every knee on the earth and under the earth will bow at the name of Jesus. And we come to the table now, Lord, and we, we recognize we bend our knee to you and we say thank you. Thank you that we don't have to live in fear. Thank you that we can be aware of the spiritual world, but we can be in awe of you you are glorious, you are wonderful, you have all power, all dominion is yours. You said it best, Jesus, you said all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So Lord, you fill us with your Holy Spirit as we take communion, as we pledge ourselves to you this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. Let's make our way to the table, grab the bread, grab the cup, take it together, pray together, and we'll finish our time in worship.